I'm sure that many of you have been similarly affected as I have been in singing these Christmas carols. For years and years and years before I truly became a Christian, singing these carols, singing these songs almost mindlessly with a kind of sentimental romanticism, emotionalism from that point of view only. I'll never forget my first Christmas as a, as a believer, as a, as a truly born-again spiritual person. Singing these Christmas carols was one of the most moving times in my entire life. Now, all of a sudden, words that I'd been singing for years, my eyes were open, my understanding was opened to the majesty of the reality that those words expressed. O come, all ye faithful. O come, let us adore him. Silent night. O little town of Bethlehem. Oh, I love that. I would just cry when that song, we'd sing that song. And I, you know, it's a tragedy, certainly, that in our present society, when all of our social institutions are being cleansed and sanitized of any mention of God, certainly of Jesus, the J word, and no longer is it Christmas vacation You know, no, it's not Christmas anymore. It's winter break. What a tragedy. And it's come to the place where truly now, more than ever before, truly now, it's the church, the true church, that is the repository of not only just these songs, but also the very truth that these songs point to. Jesus is the reason for the season. We cannot lose sight of that. Missed all the stuff, there's stuff that's going on. It's still Jesus, who is the most important person in all of existence. Jesus. He is Lord. I just, you know, last night we were singing these songs, and I'm thinking, we're the only ones who really understand these songs. We're the only ones who really know. And I did, I reflected back to my pre Christian days when I sing those songs. And the stark contrast between those days and when I'd become a Christian and now sing them and I just glory in those songs. Wonderful, wonderful. Just a little thought. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, it's so marvelous, God's timing... We are focused in this season on gifts and giving and so forth. And uh, God has arranged before the creation of the world that I should teach on spiritual gifts during the season. <laughs> amazing. Utterly amazing. We're going to look at verses 4 through 7 following on from last week. It's important for us to know and to realize that we are spiritual people. You know that? That the greater reality is the spiritual realm. Indeed, the scriptures tell us that we should set our hearts on that which is above, not on that which is below, not on that which is seen, but that in which is unseen. But given uh, that which is so visible and we are so immersed in that which is material, very often we lose sight of the fact that we are first and foremost spiritual people. We're alive to God. That's what the Bible says. We've been recreated that we might be alive to God and we may participate profoundly in his realm, in his kingdom, as spiritual beings first and foremost. So I say that because this is something that the Corinthians... They understood something of, but they, they, they were a little confused in terms of the truth of spirituality and the expressions of spirituality. We looked at this in some detail last week. If indeed we are going to be spiritual people, 
then as such, we need to be able to discern between that which is and those who are truly of the Spirit and those who are of some other spirit. Would that make sense to you? Absolutely. How is one going to determine if somebody else saying that they're spiritual, purporting to say something spiritual, something about the unseen realm, how are we to know that what they're saying is true or not? What basis do we have on which to judge? We got this book. But is just having this book enough? No, you got to have the Spirit of God. Because it's only by the Spirit of God that you can know and understand the testimony of this book, and most especially the testimony of who? Jesus Christ. You see, the, the, the one final common denominator must be a true and accurate confession in Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? That's the issue. And that's the issue across the board. Everybody believes in Jesus. <laughs> the question is, what Jesus are they believing in? Uh, the Muslims believe in Jesus? Islam teaches about Jesus? Jehovah's Witness teach about Jesus? Mormons teach about Jesus? Buddhists teach about Jesus? Hindus teach about Jesus? The New Age spiritualists teach about Jesus. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus, everybody will say. Yeah, but what Jesus? What Jesus? So it's essential that we have a clear understanding as to the person of Jesus. Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 12 that the confession must be Jesus is Lord. He can be nothing less than Lord. And if, the saying is, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is Lord of nothing at all. He must be Lord of all. Does that, does that make sense to you? So in terms of determining that which is spiritual, in terms of working out in our lives that which is truly spiritual, it must find its foundation in a true and accurate confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, as the Bible sets him forth to be. He is the living word, taken on flesh, dwelt amongst us, etc. So it's vital for us to understand these things. Now, the Corinthians had many, many difficulties, many, many problems, many, many confusions, many of which stem from the fact that they carried over into their new church life uh, many of the old pagan practices, the old life contaminating the new. That's something that all of us must continually guard against. Uh, you become a Christian, especially in, in our day and age, where we're so immersed in the, in the material realm uh, that it's very, very easy for us as we get saved to bring over into our new life lots of misconceptions, misunderstandings, and materialistic understandings of what it means to be a Christian. And this is, in fact, what the Corinthians would do. And, in fact, it's a, a major danger for even the 20th century church to guard against carrying over into our spiritual life, into our new life, that which is uh, largely of our old pagan and godless existence. The Corinthians were also immersed in that which was spectacular. They were very, very oriented towards uh, emotionalism and to experientialism, and uh, largely to the uh, um, exclusion of... Uh, content or truth or right and accurate doctrine. And again, this was part of the carryover. Uh, if it feels good, it must be right. If it feels good, well, let's do it. It seems okay. The Bible says there, there's a, a way that seems right to a man, but its end is what? Death. And see, so there's things in life and in the world that seem right, that sound right, that seem okay, I mean, we have this whole emphasis in our society right now uh, with the worship of nature, Mother Earth. And while I'm all in favor of being a good steward over that which God has placed into our trust and our care, uh, but I think that lots and lots of people have stepped over the line, and even Christians are misunderstanding now about the object of what is to be worshipped and how we are to um, care for uh, material, the material existence uh, certainly not to worship it. But we carry that stuff into the church. And all of a sudden, you've got whole ministries and whole 
groups of people being raised up and, and, and elevating themselves and elevating these things to the exclusion of accurate and right doctrine and truth and worship of Jesus. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, not Mother Earth. Not Mother Earth. So there's a right, we've got to have a right perception, a right understanding of these kinds of things. And the Corinthians had lost all perspective. Paul writes this letter to them to correct them and to rebuke them for the great misunderstandings and abuses uh, that were going on in the Corinthian church. He doesn't just write to instruct. He writes largely to rebuke and to, re and to correct them. And so uh, it's incumbent upon us to learn from the Corinthians so we don't make the same mistakes. Now, as Paul, as we read the next several verses, verses 4 through 7, understanding our need to recognize that which is truly spiritual and who is truly spiritual it's going to, Paul's going to discuss spiritual gifts, and he's going to give us more insight into spiritual gifting. The Corinthians were conformists. They did not understand, nor did they engage, the great diversity and the great variety of God's creation in his church in terms of giftedness and ministry. They were very, very simply, very superficial people. They were, and superficial people tend to copy people. Do you know that? They, they don't know how to think, and they, they won't risk, they won't step out in new areas and explore and so forth as God calls us to begin to walk by faith and understand the diversities built into the church. So the Corinthians were very, very into copying. They were into formulas, they were into lists, those kinds of things. That's a very dangerous thing to be into, and, and, but that's very, very tempting for us. And as such, they were really enamored with um, certain spiritual gifts, especially the more dramatic ones, most especially the gift of tongues. They thought that was it. And boy, everybody had to be speaking in tongues, and they would do it radically in their services. They were all over the map with this thing, and everybody was focused on this one particular gift to the exclusion of all the other gifts. Now, when Paul rebukes them, it's possible to perceive his rebuke as to saying, look, there are no such things, uh, putting down spiritual gifts, putting down tongues. He's not doing that. He's trying to bring correction to their misunderstanding. He's not saying that there is nothing like this in existence, but rather he's trying to expand their perception of spiritual giftedness, that it, it, it goes far beyond just tongues or just some of the more ecstatic kinds of experiences that they were um, experiencing. So that's just by way of background, a little bit about why we transition now into these verses. Verse 4 through 7, read them with me. Now I want you to notice two things that, that occur in these verses. These two concepts, there is diversity and there is unity. Not conformity, unity. There's a difference between unity and conformity. Diversity is essential to true unity. If a church is to be healthy, it must have a great diversity of giftedness, ministry, and working of those gifts if it is indeed to be a healthy church. And it finds all those gifts, all those ministries, and all the workings of those ministries find their common ground, if I can use that term, find their unity in the person of God. Okay? We'll see this reflected in these verses. So read with me. Verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, he says, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, he says, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now remember, we are talking from a context of several weeks now of the purpose of the church being the building up of the church, the edification of the church, that the church achieve unity in the faith, maturity indeed to the fullness of Christ, that the church be Christ-like, right? And so this is part of what he's having to talk about when he says that all these things are given for the common good. Now we're going to, in the next several weeks, look at the spiritual gifts 
in some detail. We'll look at how one can determine what his or her gift or gift mix may be and, and all of those kind of subsidiary things. But right now, this morning, I just want us to understand this theme of diversity because it is absolutely vital for the church to know this and to be able to engage it. For if we do not, this is foundational, then we'll fall into the same trap the Corinthians had fallen into and we will isolate ourselves in terms of just some particular gifts, the most visible, the most dramatic, and that will remove significantly uh, great numbers of people from potential ministry and effectiveness. Am I making sense to you? All right. So Paul's explaining here in this passage, these short verses, that there are things, there are spiritual manifestations. They are real. He says, but there are many, 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 in contrast to their narrow perception of what they were experiencing. He explains that the Spirit gives different kinds of gifts, a great variety of gifts to be used in different kinds of ministry or service, all in service of who? The Lord. You see, all in service of the Lord. Now, if you don't have that, that, that reality that we're all serving the Lord, you have people ministering, you have them all over the map doing all sorts of things, and you do not have real unity. It's because we're all serving the Lord that we have unity. That diversity finds its fulfillment in the Lord. And then having also different kinds of workings or operations. God working according to his will, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Now let's look at verse 4. Different kinds of gifts. The word gift means, it comes from the Greek word charisma. Literally it means grace or grace gift. Or you could say free gift. So these are very, very special free expressions of God's grace to his church. They are spiritual in nature. And they are given to every single Christian. And there's a great variety of these gifts. But they are given to enable each Christian to minister to serve spiritually. Spiritually. This is very, very important to understand. This is for spiritual service. Now, spiritual service will have an outworking in the visible arena, in the material realm, but it must be understood first and foremost that these gifts are given for spiritual service. First and foremost. Spiritual gifts are not the same as natural talents. They're not the same as natural talents. Now, somebody, somebody's going to say, well, now, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that a person who is very gifted naturally before he becomes a Christian, very gifted in, in, in public speaking, uh, has uh, 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 the gift of gab, can talk good and stuff like that. You mean to say that God couldn't take that and, 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 and invest it with spiritual grace and blessing and so forth and sanctify it in that sense and make it a spiritual gift of teaching? Sure, God can do anything he wants. I'm not gonna, I don't want to emphasize that point. The point I want to emphasize, and for a very particular reason, is there is a distinct difference between natural gifts and abilities and spiritual gifts. Why do I want to emphasize this? Because we have a tendency, because we are so competent in so many areas, and because we're so focused in the material realm, to think we can minister spiritually from a natural gifted point of view. Are you with me? And I'll give you an illustration of this in just a little while. So it's very, very important for us to understand that spiritual gifts differ from natural talents, natural abilities, um, natural skills. Both are common to believers and unbelievers, aren't they? I mean, aren't natural, natural gifts common to believers as well as non-believers? Sure. I mean, you can have... You can have atheists and agnostics, tremendously gifted people. Gifted artists, musicians, athletes, uh, statesmen, carpenters, cooks, 
I mean, every area of life. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to be tremendously naturally gifted and skilled in, in, in any of these ways. I mean, outstanding people. The world is full of them. A Christian can be naturally gifted and outstanding in one of these areas. But he had that natural gift and ability before he became a Christian. Now he becomes a Christian. Does he still have that natural ability? Absolutely. Hopefully he'll use it in the service of the Lord. You see, Paul says in a couple of places, you know, whatever you do, do unto him, do it as unto him, do it for his glory, and so forth. So now we use our natural abilities. But again, natural abilities don't always necessarily translate into, and they are distinctly different from spiritual gifts and spiritual abilities. This is very, very important for us to understand. Spiritual gifts come only as a result of salvation. They come only as a result of a person being born again, being made a new creature, given a brand new life, being made alive to God. You cannot get spiritual gifts any other way. They are supernatural. They are above and beyond that which is natural. And they are given by the Holy Spirit only and always to true believers in Jesus Christ without exception. So there's a very, very narrow spectrum there, isn't there? Spiritual gifts are given by who? The Holy Spirit. Who are they given to? Only true believers. Are they always given? Absolutely. Only and always to true believers in Jesus Christ without exception. So if you are a true born-again believer, you are in the possession of certain spiritual gifts. Certainly one, but probably several. Now these are given so that we might be able, and don't lose sight of this, that we might be able to serve and to minister to each other spiritually, ultimately serving the Lord. Now it's interesting, you'd think that in this particular area, it'd be vital for Bible scholars to be in agreement, wouldn't you? This is probably one of the areas that is most notorious for Bible scholars to differ in terms of uh, the numbers of gifts possible, the distinctions of the gifts, even if some of the gifts are still in evidence uh, today in our present age, there are some who teach that some of the spiritual gifts, uh, like tongues and prophecy and healing and um, word of knowledge and wisdom and so forth, that they passed away uh, at the conclusion of the first century. We'll be talking about that in the future. But the New Testament does give us insight uh, via three different lists of spiritual gifts. Now let me give you these references. If you don't already have them, you might want to write them down and read them later on. The first list is right here in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, verses 8 through 10, and also verse 28. So that would be the first place you could find a mention or reference to uh, differing spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, and also verse 28. The second place would be in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. So that would be a second place where you could find a mention and listing of some spiritual gifts. The third place would be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Now those are the three most recognized and commonly acknowledged places where you can find references. There are some other more obscure places, but there are, there's much debate upon those. But those are the three most recognized lists. Now, as you read those lists, something becomes very apparent. The lists are not always in agreement. They're not identical, and they're not exhaustive. They're not definitive lists. They're not rigid lists. They're, they seem to be kind of incomplete, and kind of short, uh, especially the one in Peter. Romans is compared to Corinthians. Why do you think that might be? Well, I have a theory. I believe that God deliberately did not give us an exhaustive or rigid list of gifts. The reason being is that we are great with lists, aren't we? We love doing it by the numbers. We are so focused in, in this material world, that we are people, most of us here in this room this morning, 
if, if, if given two canvases to paint on, most of us would choose the paint by numbers. <laughs> Why? Because that's the easiest and most simple. But you present somebody with a blank canvas and say, now, and be inspired, paint some great masterpiece. We go, oh, man, I wish I could have one of those paint by numbers. And you can get paid for either one of them, you see. But we would do great with lists. Can you imagine God just giving us his lists? We'd say, boom, 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 and make it all real simple. If that were the case, we would not need God. We can just trust in a list. True? So I think God gives us some general categories. He gives us some, some representations of gifts and gift categories. And I believe that he means for us to understand that there is such a thing, but be submissive to him in terms of understanding, <clears throat> excuse me, how he has gifted us and also have an understanding that we could possess a multiple of gifts or a gift mix or... Uh, some combination of several gifts in different proportions than other people? Do you think that that might be a possibility? Does God love variety? Oh, you should stand up here and look from my vantage point. Not only does he have love variety, he has a great sense of humor. <laughs> so I think that God doesn't, doesn't give us an exhaustive list for a very good reason, because he wants us to trust in him, not in a list. He wants us to trust in the dynamics of his spirit working in and through us to produce what he wants to produce in us, according to his design, rather than us just going down a list and picking something out, which we would be very apt to do, which people do do when they read the list and they say, oh, well, I must have this gift and this gift, and that's all there is, and the exclusion of any other gift. So hopefully I can expand your perception of the diversity of giftedness and also the diversity of ministry and the diversity of the working of those gifts this morning. So um, there's all sorts of possibilities with respect to giftedness. Now, each believer is absolutely, totally unique with respect to his or her giftedness. There are no two believers that are identical in terms of giftedness. Just like there are no two persons, no human beings who are identical in terms of their natural skills and talents and abilities. Make sense? So the same principle, I believe, holds true also for spiritual gifting. Now look at verse 5. So he's told us now that there are different kinds of gifts, not just a few, not just one or two, but there are just tremendous variety of gifts, but one spirit who gives them all, and then he goes on, that sets the stage. He says that there are different kinds of service, or literally different kinds of ministries. So there's a variety of gifts, and the variety of gifts is given for the variety of ministry that God has created. If you look into Ephesians chapter 2, remember the letter to the Ephesian church is a, is a theology of the church. And in the chapter 2, when Paul talks about us being saved, he says that we're saved for good works that were prepared before the creation of the heavens and the earth. So God already prepared the works that we were to do, the ministries that you and I were to be involved in, had them all set up beforehand before even the heavens and the earth were created. Is that not amazing? Does that not boggle your mind? It does mine. It does mine. God's plan is certain and sure, and it's been certain and sure from eternity past to eternity future, if we can even use those terms in reference of eternity. So there's a great diversity now, we see, of ministry. Christians, even possessing the same giftedness, may use that gift in different ways. That's what he means. There's different ministries. Let me, let me illustrate. <clears throat> Let's say that my friend John, my beloved friend John, Let's say that God has gifted him with the spiritual gift of teaching, all right? And that God has gifted my friend Richard with the spiritual gift of teaching. Now, same spiritual gift, two different people, remember, but there's a diversity, there's a variety in what? Service or ministry. What that means is, in terms of their, this illustration, is John, if he's gifted with the gift of teaching, maybe this man is gifted in such a way that he can teach children in such a powerful and unique way 
that they can come to know truth in Christ uh, like, like never before, that he has a special gift that is effective for teaching children. But maybe Richard's gift, maybe he's lousy with kids. You know, he may have the same gift. He hangs around with John, and, and he sees how effective John is with kids. So he tries to teach kids, and the kids go, huh? <laughs> but you get this guy in a seminary setting, and seminary students are wrapped with his ability and giftedness in teaching. You see how the, the diversity of ministry or service, though the same gift can occur? Let's, let's use the gift of evangelism as another classic example, using my two beloved brothers. Let's say they both possess the gift of evangelism. And John, let's say that John is phenomenal in terms of the expression of that gift in one-on-one -on -one evangelism. He can talk with people one-on-one -on -one, uh, and lead people to Christ just like this. Just incredible. Oh, it just knocks them down. He, gets, he goes downtown, gets in an elevator, comes down from the 10th floor of one of the high-rise buildings, and there's another guy in the elevator. Doesn't know the guy from Adam, but turns him, by the time they're from the 10th floor to the first floor, leads the guy to Christ. Would you say that's effective use of that gift? Would you say that this man is gifted? Yes. But now our friend Richard. Let's say the one-on-one, -on -one, he, 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 just, he just is intimidated by one-on-one -on -one relationships and all this stuff. But his giftedness in evangelism comes out more clearly in, in a large group where he can stand before a large crowd of people and he can preach the gospel and people respond. Kind of like Billy Graham. You know, and I'm not saying Billy Graham isn't good on one-on-one. -on -one. He probably is. I've never had visibility of that. But, but he's really effective, what, for large crowds. I mean, he just gets up there and he preaches a very simple gospel. I love listening to him. I love listening to him. And he preaches a very simple gospel. And then he says, all right, now just come on down. Yeah. And man, you see him pouring out of the, out of the stands. I marvel. I say, my gosh. And I work my tail off to get two or three people to walk down an aisle. I must not have the gift of evangelism, you see. But do you understand the diversity of the, uh, of the uh, expression of the service of, that, of the same, very same gift? So while there's, there's different gifts, even within the, within the realm of the same gift, there's diversity of ministry. There's varieties of ministries and service. Very, very, very important for us to understand this. Again, uh, the emphasis in our passage here is on a variety and the variety within the context of the unity of God, and again, God is very, very fond of variety. Now, when Paul speaks of service in verse 6, I'm sorry, in verse 5, or literally ministry, he's translating from the Greek word diakonos, from which that word just quite simply means to serve or a servant. It's the same word we get the word deacon from. A deacon is one who serves, Okay. Now, interestingly, Paul uses this word diakonos here to describe service or ministry, the various kinds of, of ministries. It's the very same word that Jesus used to describe himself, recorded by Mark in his gospel in chapter 10, verse 45, when Jesus, in describing himself, says, I came not to be served, but to serve. Same word, diakonos. Jesus came to serve others for God. And His Spirit now equips you and I to do the very same thing, to serve others. And He's given us a variety of ways and ministries in which we can serve others. Isn't that exciting? No limit. It's inexhaustible, God's imagination and His design for ministry. Now, as we consider spiritual gifts and we consider ministry... You have to understand there's also a tension here, and we must bear in mind that spiritual gifts are not given as emblems or badges of prestige or privilege. And again, this was something that the Corinthians tripped up over time and time again. These are not given as emblems of privilege. Look at me. Look how I am gifted. Aren't I wonderful? No, they are given as tools of what? Ministry. That's why they're given. They're given as tools of ministry, to affect ministry. And he gives them for a limitless variety of service or ministry. Immeasurable numbers. It is also crucial for us to understand that while they are not given as emblems, but rather as tools for ministry, 
they are also not to be used in selfish or self-serving motives, by, with self-serving motives. Let me give you an example. A person with the gift of teaching. With that gift, that person is to prepare lessons and or sermons or messages and to what? To give them, right? Doesn't prepare them just to read them him or herself. All for their own benefit. If I were to go home and do all my study and do all my research and to think through all this stuff and write all these notes just for my own benefit, am I a faithful steward over that gift? Absolutely not. What about the person who has the gift of discernment? The gift of discernment. Being able to spiritually discern, being able to gain special spiritual insights from the Holy Spirit Not for that person, that person's own benefit necessarily, but they're meant to what? To be shared for the building up of the body, right? A person with a spiritual gift of helps. By definition, that person must help. Or the person with a spiritual gift of mercy, that person must be merciful. Or the spiritual gift of service. That person must serve. These gifts are not given for us just to sit on them and to use them for our own self-serving motivations. God gives his gifts to us, but he gives them to us for others, giving away. And we are indeed powerfully and personally blessed when we use our gifts properly in the service of others. And the blessing is not the motive for using the gifts, but the blessing comes as the byproduct of serving and giving away. Let me give you an example. This is fascinating to me. In our house, we subscribe to a number of journals and magazines and so forth, and uh, one of them is Guidepost Magazine. Are you familiar with Guidepost? Wonderful little magazine. Uh, I would recommend it. I love reading that thing. I pick it up, and we've got them all over the house. We've got them in the bathrooms. Wonderful for bathroom reading. I mean, they're little short, quick articles, right? So if you can spend time in the bathroom and you want to do a little reading, you can read. If you're sitting in the tub, you know, and so forth. <laughs> anyway, Guidepost Magazine. Point is, there are some really good little articles. And I was reading one of the magazines just last week. And I was just fascinated by the story of this man who was a high-powered banking executive, uh, who is a believer, but who is experiencing a measure of, of frustration in his own spiritual life. He wasn't really fulfilled and kind of going to church and going to Bible studies, wasn't really doing it for him. Uh, and he was, he was experiencing a measure of frustration. So one, one Sunday he was in church and he was leaving and he, he noticed as he walked past the uh, bulletin board, there was a, a little advertisement on the bulletin board asking for people to help in a, uh, in a hospital kind of visitation ministry. Well, he'd never done anything like that in his life. But he was intrigued, and, and his curiosity was piqued, and so he went to this informational meeting, gained a little bit more insight, and then decided, well, I'll go and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll watch as they do this in the hospital and see what it's like. So he just kind of took these little baby steps. And it wasn't long before he found himself fully invested in this hospital ministry in the AIDS Ward, the hospice, the AIDS hospice ward, where he never in his whole life imagined he would ever find himself ministering amongst people who were largely abandoned and forgotten uh, by friends and family and so forth. So people who were very, very desperate. The marvelous thing that this man began to discover is that you would think because of his experience and his background and his job and all the stuff that he does, that he would be gifted spiritually as an administrator, as a church leader, and so forth. You know where he discovered his spiritual gift? You know what his spiritual gift was? Mercy. Mercy. And he found himself ministering great mercy to these dying, suffering people who desperately needed a compassionate touch from somebody, a compassionate word from somebody who could tell them the truth in a merciful and compassionate way in which they could receive it. And he began to find that his life 
was just overflowing with fullness with blessing. Now, he didn't go into it looking for it, but he got it as a byproduct of discovering how he was gifted and the ministry in which he began to serve and something that he never, ever would have explored without some kind of leading, some kind of guiding, some kind of willingness to participate. He went on from there, uh, not only working with, with AIDS patients, but then he would change clothes and he would go up to the nursery, the newborn nursery, where they had a warehouse for babies. And these were uh, babies of drug mothers and um, abandoned children who the nursing staff, they didn't have enough personnel just to hold the kids. And so he would go up there and, and, and he would, here's this guy after work, after a full day in his, in his executive banking position, dealing with high power deals and so forth, here's this guy holding babies. I mean, on the surface of it, it seems totally incongruous, doesn't it? But spiritually speaking, not at all. Not at all. And so this, this man confessed in this testimony of the incredible blessing that he was experiencing by learning to give his life away in service as he began to discover how God wanted to use him. Indeed, Jesus says, it is more blessed to what? To give than to receive. And indeed, we find out the reality of that when we truly begin to give. Now, there's lots and lots of Christians who are very, very, very frustrated in their Christian life and experience because though they want to give, they don't know how or where to give and they don't understand how they're gifted. They don't understand where they fit in the body of Christ so that they can give and begin to experience the great fruitfulness that God has designed for them to experience. Verse 6, he speaks of the differences of operations. That's the literal translations, but in the New International Version, he says different kinds of working. Different kinds of working, but the same God working all these things. Now, the word operations, or working, comes from the Greek word energetma. And that is the same word we get the word English word energy from. Energy. It's always translated work or working in the New Testament. The point is, just as spiritual gifts are given supernaturally, so they are worked or energized supernaturally. That is very important for us to understand. Christians, no matter how well-trained, no matter how experienced, no matter how well-intentioned they may be, cannot exercise spiritual gifts in their own power. Can't do it. Now, we try. We certainly try. And we are so efficient and so effective in so many areas of life that we come into the church and we try to be spiritual but operating in our own power and we get frustrated, frustrated, frustrated. I know I do, and it just reminds me, i got to back up and i got to spend time with the Lord and uh, be energized and filled by His Spirit if I'm going to be at all productive and effective in ministry. We may, in fact, exercise our talents and skills and abilities and intelligence, those natural things in our own power, but only the giver of spiritual gifts can empower those spiritual gifts to make them effective. God gives commands, doesn't he? When God gives commands, does he expect those commands to be obeyed? Yes. Can we obey his commands in our own human power? No. But God gives the power to obey him. That's why he says to uh, be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, 518, he says, Be being filled with the Spirit. Now again, it's not an accident that that verse and that admonition is written to us within the context of a theology of the church in the letter to the Ephesians. Be being filled, be being kept filled with the Holy Spirit. For you cannot do God's things God's way without God's power. You've got to have His power. And the same thing is true of spiritual gifting. You say, well, how do I get God's power? Real simple. There's two essential elements for you to be released in God's power to fulfill and to actually be able to evidence that spiritual gifting. One, be filled with the Holy Spirit in opposition to being filled with yourself or sin. Most of us are filled with ourselves. Aren't we? Yeah, me, 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 me. When was the last time you got defensive? 
When was the last time you defended yourself? When was the last time you said, but, 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 but? Are you filled with the Spirit? No, you're filled with you. Because you've got a need to defend yourself. You've got a need to stand up for your rights, whatever those rights may be in, in terms of your perception. But rather be filled with the Spirit. See, if we're filled with sin or if we're filled with us, we can't be filled with the Spirit. So we've got to empty ourselves. We've got to empty ourselves of sin and selfishness so that we have room for what? The Spirit to fill us up. Spirit's already living in us, but sometimes we crowd him out. And it's essential that he fill us up. Now, the other thing is um, that we be willing to be used. <laughs> a lot of people want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but they're not willing to be used. A lot of people in the church uh, just kind of saying, well, I just want to come. I just want to sit. I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be hassled. I don't want to get so involved, you know, so much time. And I got all these other things. That ought not to be. That ought not to be. Everybody in the church should be willing to be used. Everybody in the church needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. True? Both of those things are absolutely essential. I'm going to say something right now that, that for some people is going to seem like absolute heresy. Absolute heresy. I disagree with James Dobson. disagrees with James Thompson. I love him. He's a brother. Has some great things to say. But I think he's done the church a tremendous disservice in teaching self-esteem. Jesus says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Are we to be built up in our human natures or do we be built up spiritually? Big difference. Big difference. And the focus from secular psychology, the focus from the world is build yourself up, build yourself up. Come on, take care of yourself. And the whole cult of self-esteem has taken over in the church. And it's working contrary to what the Spirit wants to do in getting people to divest themselves of their own self-interest and their own selfishness so that they're free to what? to minister, free to serve. Not concerned about their own needs necessarily, not concerned about their own wants and desires. Because why? The Bible says already that God has provided everything we need. The Bible says that you are more important to God than any other person. The Bible says that Jesus died for you. So right away, you have worth and value to God. That's a settled issue. You don't need to concern yourself anymore with it. Now, but the feeling is, yeah, but I don't feel it. That's right. You don't feel it because you're still focused on getting it. When, in fact, what you've got to be able to do is say, wait a minute. I'm important to God. That's a settled issue. God's already got all my needs met. He knows everything I need. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to turn, and I'm going to quit focusing on myself and start focusing on how I can serve and how I can be useful in his hands. Am I making sense at all? So please don't misunderstand me. I love James Dobson, but I think, God bless him, he's done the church a great disservice and very, 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 very many people are caught up in this whole cult of self-esteem to the, to the detriment of the healthy functioning of the church. I just believe it. And I see so many people caught up in that and I hear it so many times. But what about me? What about me? Don't I have rights? What about me? What about me? God's already met your needs. You just need to trust him. You need to step out in faith and begin to let his spirit energize your life to do the things he has set apart for you to do. And quit focusing on yourself. Quit focusing on yourself. It's, it's, it's real simple. Not real easy, though. Not real easy. And like the gifts... And like the ministries, the diversity of the gifts and the diversity of ministries, the working or the energizing of those gifts and ministries are also varied. They also have a great diversity. Let me explain to you what I mean. The same gift may be used by the Lord in countless ways, but with varieties of results. 
Even the same person exercising the same gift will not always see the same result or extent of effect of that gift. Example, the gift of healing. Let's say you have the gift of healing. And I believe that people in the church have the gift of healing. There's a caricature that they have hot hands, you know. They have this gift that they can, they can minister to people and people get healed. Now, some people say that that's not true, that God still heals people, but people, he has not given a gift of healing. I believe he has. And we'll talk about that later in later weeks. But let's say you have the gift of healing. Should you expect that every time you pray that everybody is perfectly healed? No. Why? Because what? There are different kinds of what? Workings of these gifts. Different kinds of workings. I had a guy come and argue with me about this very issue and, and the, the existence of, of these kinds of gifts still present in the church as opposed to having passed away in the first century and that the church really doesn't need them. And he said, well, and, and, and his testimony, his evidence was, he says, well, if I had the gift of healing, I should, I should be able to go and, and clear out hospitals. And if people have this gift, why aren't hospitals being cleared out? I said, because you don't know the scriptures. The scriptures say the, the effect, the working of that gift will be different. It's according to God's will. He who is in us working his will and his good pleasure. So it's not that you got these automatic hot hands that bang, bang, bang every single time. Jesus didn't heal everybody. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to read the Gospels to see that. He went to Nazareth. He could only heal a couple people. He went to the, uh, uh, to the uh, uh, pool there at Bethsaida. And remember the one guy that he healed and all these other sick people around him? Why did he heal everybody else? And he did a variety of ways of healing. I mean, who, who would ever think to stoop down, spit in the mud, make some mud, put it on a guy's eyes, tell him, walk, I want you to go down a quarter of a mile to the pool, wash the stuff off your eyes, and you'll see. <laughs> but we want a nice, neat formula. You know, and we pray these formulas and these great prayers. <laughs> no, you just, you know, you just got to, you know, be healed in Jesus' name. I don't know, you know. Amen. Slap Thank somebody, <laughs> grab their shirt, you know. There's different workings of these gifts. But we want to categorize them, put them in nice, neat boxes, and, you know, make it all predictable. God is not predictable in that sense. He's predictable in the sense that he is faithful and orderly, trustworthy, and so forth. But in terms of being able to call on him and have him boom, boom, boom every single time, eh, there's different workings of these gifts. Very important for us to understand. Because if we don't understand that, you set yourself up for huge confusion and failure. Think, oh, my hands aren't hot anymore. It doesn't work. <laughs> well, there might be a different reason for that. <laughs> you know, Maybe you're full of yourself again. No laughing matter, is it? So, God's people, God's gifts, God's ministries, God's operations of those ministries are all unique and different. No two are alike. They're just like snowflakes. No two alike in all of God's creations. Every gift is as important as it is unique. Every gift is as spiritual as any other gift. No gift is more spiritual than any other. And the Corinthians would say, well, I have thus and such a gift. And they'd look down on people who seemingly were lesser gifted, and people who were seemingly lesser gifted would look to the others as with envy as being greater gifted. No, they're all equal. They're all vital. They're all important to the overall health and welfare and functioning of the church. Our concern should be, one, to discover our gift, two, to faithfully use it, and three, to thank God for allowing us to participate with him in the process of what he's doing in his church via that giftedness. That's our, our concern ought to be that. Forget all everybody else, whatever else they're doing. Don't envy, don't look down on others. God makes no mistakes. He makes no mistakes. His gifts to us are the best possible ones he could give us for doing what he wants us to do. They are the best possible gifts 
He makes no mistakes. He knows exactly how he's created you. He knows exactly how he's recreated you. He knows exactly what he's recreated you for. He knows exactly how you best work. He knows exactly how he's gifted you, and he knows the effect that he wants to bring about. Not only is every believer gifted, but every believer is perfectly gifted. Perfectly gifted. God makes no mistakes. How many parents do we have here this morning? Oh, lots of parents. Wonderful. Question. Could any other child be an adequate substitute for your child? No way. Now, some of you may say, oh, yes. (laughs) Please, God, (laughs) help me. (laughs) Somebody actually said that. Somebody said, oh, yes. No. No No other child could be an adequate substitute for your child. Isn't that true? And just as that is true to us, beloved, neither are God's children replaceable or the ministries he has given us replaceable. These things are not replaceable. No other believer can take your place in God's heart. No other believer can take your place in God's work. These things are unique to you. He has given no one else the exact gift or gift mix he has given you. He has given no one else the exact ministry he has given you. Nobody else. It's yours. And he's created it uniquely for you. If we do not use our gift, no one else will. If we do not fulfill the ministries given to us, it will not be fulfilled. What a tragedy. Would you agree? Tremendous tragedy. So it's incumbent upon us to to understand these things and to say, "Lord, Lord, how am I gifted? To begin to search that out and faithfully use that giftedness and be thankful for it. Now, one other thing. And then we'll dismiss. The Holy Spirit gives these gifts, in verse 7, for what? The common good. The common good. We're serving one another for the common good, for the building up of the church, in essence. And we'll see this later on as we continue to study through the passage. Not only does our exercise of spiritual gifts minister to others, but it also helps them to better minister their gifts. In Ephesians, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, again, in the theology of the church, Paul tells the church that that God has given special gifts to the church. And those gifts, or some say offices, are uh, the gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And these are given to the church for the building up of the church, for the work of ministry, for the work of Service. So now you've got a pastor or a teacher teaching the church. And as that pastor faithfully engages that gift and teaches that church faithfully, that church then is equipped better to be released in their ministry, in their giftedness. Do you follow? So our gifts are given to serve, but as we serve others, also there is a release for others to better use their gifts. And there's indeed great blessing to the church. There are four four areas of blessing, and we'll conclude with this. As the church, any church, ministers faithfully its spiritual gifts. If it doesn't minister faithfully, then there's not going to be a release of other gifts and an encouragement of other gifts, but rather a hindering of other gifts in the church. But there's four, four blessings result when a church faithfully ministers its gifts. The first, Christians themselves receive a great blessing We've talked about this earlier, both from the exercising of that gift on the behalf of others and for other people exercising their gift on behalf of that particular Christian. So there's this, I'm ministering to you, you're ministering to me. And there's great blessing happening in that environment. Secondly, when everyone is doing his part, the church now has a powerful, dynamic witness. Everybody is fulfilling their role. Everybody is participating in the ministry. The church has a dynamic witness And in the community, people stand up and they say, wow, that church is awesome. People are experiencing awesome things in that church. They are growing. They're healthy. God is doing awesome things. He is there in that church. 
Is that the testimony of the world to the church today? No, the church today, the testimony of the world is the church is irrelevant and you can just dismiss it. But you see, when a church, any church, is faithfully exercising and operating its spiritual gifts, you have that church producing a dynamic witness in which everybody in the church participates in and everybody gets the result, gets to participate in the results and be blessed by what God is doing through that church. Thirdly, when a church ministers its gifts, God's leaders become apparent. Who do we want leading God's church? God's leaders. Do we want the world's leaders leading God's church? Do we want demonic, demonically inspired leaders leading God's church? No, we've had enough of that. Do we want, do we want people just, just interested in material gain leading God's church? No, we want God's leaders. And again, when the church is functioning, when the church is faithfully administering its gifts, then God's leaders become apparent. And when God's leaders are leading God's church in God's way, is the church blessed? Whoo, I hope to shout, absolutely. And the last blessing, a church that faithfully uses its gifts in the Spirit's power, beloved, experiences the joy of great unity, love, and fellowship. The things that God designed in the first place for us to experience, we begin to know and experience the great joy of unity, love, and fellowship in ways that no amount of human planning, ability, or effort could ever produce. It's God working through God's people for His purposes. Great diversity, great variety of gifts for a great variety of ministries in a great variety of ways that those things are worked for the common good, for the building up of His church. Is this important? Absolutely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing these things to us. Thank you for communicating them in such a way that we can understand and relate. Thank you for your spirit that opens our eyes to the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our minds and hearts the importance of spiritual gifting for the church, that the church indeed be alive and vital and effective. Lord, keep us from trying to minister in our own power that we might power administer according to your power, to your grace. We give you thanks this morning. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing one more song before we dismiss. Oh, Lord, you reign in majesty. Oh, and God and your throne from everlasting stands throughout eternity
Turn.